Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thank you all for the, the warm introductions. Um, first, I want to thank David and all the students who are leaders here in this chapter of the Thomistic Institute for inviting me this evening to talk about a topic that is, is very, very dear to me. It's also nice to have um, some friendly faces in the audience who've heard me speak on this topic before. So uh, go Big Red and Buckeyes. Uh, the title of tonight's lecture is The Beautiful and the Sublime, How to Make Art That Leads to God. For the purposes of tonight's talk, I want to acknowledge that there are many alternative theories about aesthetics. Um, does anyone know, show of hands, who knows what I mean when I say aesthetics? Okay, not everyone. Okay, so just, just to be clear where we are, take the pulse. So aesthetics is the philosophical study of beauty, um, and there are both modern and contemporary theories that we're just not going to get into tonight because this is a Thomistic Institute chapter, so I'm going to present my thoughts at least, um, drawn from the work of St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, and I don't think it's out of order for me to spend the majority of our time talking about what St. Thomas Aquinas might say about this, um, about the beautiful, the sublime, and about art. At the same time, I should acknowledge just openly that if you want to dive deeper into this topic, that St. Thomas Aquinas, while he wrote many things and in many volumes, he never wrote a formal treatise on the subject that I'm about to present. So I, like many others over the centuries, must infer um, certain connections based on St. Thomas Aquinas's stated principles about the nature of beauty in and of itself, as well as the nature of the human person. So between the beautiful and the sublime, let us begin tonight with the beautiful, since this is something with which we all might feel more comfortable with. We can more readily understand what the beautiful is, perhaps I would venture to guess, than the sublime. So let's talk about the beautiful and then we will cover the sublime because while they sometimes can connect, not always are synonymous. There are two key passages about beauty in the Summa Theologiae. It makes an early appearance in the first part uh, at question five on goodness in general. Um, and so here, if you're familiar with the Summa, and again, if you're not familiar with the Summa, as David said, there's a reading club, so please join that. In the early parts of the Summa, St. Thomas Aquinas is talking about the question of God fundamentally. And so here's the pertinent passage on the nature of the good. Beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally, for they are based upon the same thing, namely the form. And consequently, goodness is praised as beauty. And there's a deeper issue at hand here of what are called the transcendentals. Sometimes you hear this in Catholic speak of goodness, truth, and beauty. Of course, those who are like diehard Thomas are like, beauty, question mark on that. Rays, which is thingness, is also a transcendental if we look in early Aquinas. So is unity, which I think is the most forgotten transcendental. But one of the principles that Thomas lays out is that, you know, ultimately, we're talking about different aspects of the same thing. So here, beauty and goodness, right, are related. But they differ logically, for goodness properly relates to the appetite, goodness being what all things desire, and therefore it has the aspect of an end, 
the appetite being a kind of movement towards a thing. On the other hand, beauty relates to the cognitive faculty, for beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence, beauty consists in due proportion. For the senses delight in, in things duly proportioned, as in what is after their own kind, because even sense is a sort of reason, just as ever, is every cognitive faculty. Now, since knowledge is by assimilation, and similarity relates to form, beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. And if you didn't understand all of that, that's okay, that's what the rest of this talk is about. Yeah, I see a hand over there. But also, I very helpfully put things in bold, underline, and all caps. So if you weren't sure about what to pay attention to, all right, beauty consists in due proportion. All right, beauty consists in due proportion. Among the lost books in antiquity, while we're talking about due proportion, I, I kind of want to just acknowledge that, again, as a classicist, there are a lot of lost books, and what do you wish that had been preserved, right? If there's one book that would have helped understand Aquinas, I feel like it would be St. Augustine's early treatise. He wrote a treatise called De Apto et Pulgritudine, which is just Latin for on the fitting and on the beautiful which if we still had it would perhaps be an interesting bridge between what I'm going to discuss here tonight um, between ideas of ancient literary th criticism and Christian aesthetics as found in St. Thomas Aquinas. So yes, Augustine wrote it before his conversion, so before he was actually a Catholic, but the thoughts reverberate in later commentaries we find in his on the Psalms and elsewhere in St. Thomas in St. Augustine in his other sermons on scripture, right? So we get glimpses of Augustine on beauty, but nothing like what that sustained treatise must have been. So, okay, that's a, a woulda, shoulda, coulda. That's great, we can leave it aside. It's one of those, if any of you great OSU kids builds a time machine, you know what to yank from me. Go to the end of the fourth century, you know, ask the local Roman bookseller for de apto at Pocertudine, grab that and then come back. So in the first part of the Summa, Aquinas touches on beauty as a foil then, right, to explain that goodness is a final cause, and we it pertains to a final cause. And we incidentally see that beauty pertains to the formal cause. So in case there's anyone in the audience who needs a review, a thing can be said to have four causes. So we have four causes. This comes from Aristotle, but continues on to Aquinas, where it's said to, that a thing could have four causes. There's uh, material, efficient, formal, and final. Um, and I'm going to take the, the clicker that I'm holding in my hand, right? Um, it gets complicated and messy when it's things that humans didn't make. Um, so we're going to talk about something man-made, right? This, this clicker, okay? Um, it has a material cause. It's plastic and silicone, and the warning sign on the back tells me the batteries have some you know, acids and other things that I certainly don't want to expose myself to. There's lots of stuff, right, chemicals and molecules and atoms that compose the clicker, right? Um, it has an efficient cause. The efficient just means the person who made it, who designed it, right, who patented the clicker, the people who harvested the resources. Again, there doesn't have to be one, like, artisanal clicker, right? Again, like, the, a, a clicker requires, like, hundreds if not thousands if not tens of thousands of people to make right from people who you know again talking about 2023 in the environment pope francis recently re released another encyclical reminding us that we need to treat the earth better 
Well, this clicker exists because we've strip mined, you know, various, you know, uh, heavy, heavy earth minerals from China or Africa or wherever it is. Um, there's just the reality of thousands of people go in to make the clicker. There's not one efficient cause. I mean, if any of you are looking for a future job, maybe that's what you can do. You can go out. What's, what's the name of the, the main street here? What is it? High street. You can go out on high street, buy yourself a nice little strip on the mall and, you know, sell artisanal clickers. Uh, and then you can be the one efficient cause of the clicker. Um, but for most things, there's going to be multiple people. Uh, so we have, we've done material, we've done efficient, and then we have a formal cause, right? There's a formal cause for the clicker. And that relates to the fact that this clicker is black. This clicker is of a certain shape. This clicker is of a certain size. I don't think the color of the clicker really, you know, is going to make or break it. Um, if this clicker was maybe one millimeter in size, then there might be a problem in the formal cause of the clicker, right? Because a human being is not going to be able to operate a clicker that's only one millimeter in size. The same thing if the you know, formal cause of the clicker, if the clicker was the size of this entire room, that might not be the most optimal size for a clicker. So they have a certain size and weight. It's ergonomic. It's meant to fit in my hand. It has a nice formal cause. One might almost say it's beautiful, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and then it has a final cause, right? And, and this is the thing that I hope really gets you excited about this whole idea in philosophy, that things have material causes yeah we know because the, the science tells us things have material causes right things have efficient causes yeah i know because usually there's a label telling me who made it things have formal causes i can perceive that in my senses but what we often don't think about is the philosophical idea of things having final causes so for the clicker it's really simple the final cause of the clicker is what the clicker is meant for right to take me back a slide and forward a slide it even has this nice little like you know red dot now, I also have a cat. Since I live in Nebraska, my cat's name is Willa Catter, right? It's a nice little pun on Willa Cather, our most famous Nebraska author. And I can also use this clicker to amuse my cat, right? But is that actually the final cause of the clicker? Is, this, is someone in, I don't know, Logitech, is someone in Logitech going to the whiteboard, the drafting board, and saying, you know what I really need to do is I need to invent a clicker so that someone can make their cat freak out? No, that's absolutely not the final cause of the clicker. And I can use the clicker for lots of other things, right? Maybe someone needs to like uh, hold the elevator door open, and so I put the clicker in, in the front of it, right? Maybe you need to hold the door open. I use the clicker to do that. Maybe I need to hit someone on the head, and I use the clicker. Please don't, please don't hit each other. Um, I can use this clicker for lots of other things, but it's not the final cause, right? The final cause pertains to the end for which the clicker is made. This, it's so much simpler when we talk about man-made things, because man-made things, as human beings, we know what they're there for. It gets a little trickier philosophically when we're talking about things like, why is there a tree? Why do I exist? Right? And, and we're going to leave that aside for right now, but these are just questions to ponder. All right. So, since God is spirit, I know I kind of took a left turn there. Since God is spirit, we have to understand that the beauty of God is not the same as a formal cause as the beauty of, let's say, the clicker, the podium, the blazer I'm wearing, uh, this or that individual. Moreover, in this part of the Summa, 
Aquinas is demonstrating that God is the first cause of all things, right? So it wouldn't really be good to have causes of God, right? Because that would be kind of self-defeating. The beauty of the creator is unlike the beauty of created things. Um, and, and here, you know, we're doing a lot of philosophy and I'm gonna give you just a little bit of poetry to, to justify what we're talking about tonight. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. And I think we can all readily grasp that beauty in physical objects is exactly what the slide says. It exists in due proportion, right? That the dappled nature of beauty, as Gerard Manley Hopkins says, consists of a certain variegation, right? That if there was just <clears throat> a single, you know, color to sky and there were not clouds, there would lessen its beauty. With God, he is transcendent of all of this. And so, again, that's the end of that poem. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Pray him. Praise him. So, yes, the highest form of beauty for human beings resides like God in our spirit. There's a physical beauty, but there's a beauty to you, which is something that's also spiritual. And we need to look beyond just the physical. So Aquinas is going to return to beauty when discussing the formal proportion of our soul. So in the first part of the Summa, we're talking about God and everything else that has to deal with that. And then later on in the second part, we get to human beings. So he's going to hone in this according to um, a particular virtue, right? So beauty in the soul, Aquinas is going to say, belongs to one of the many virtues that we have. And I'm just going to um, tell you, it's, it's honesty. I know it's a strange thing to think about, the, the moral intellectual beauty that resides inside of you relates to what we talk about when we talk about honesty. In the second part of the second part of the Summa, right, again, this is all the reasons you guys want to read Aquinas, right, because there's second parts of second parts, right? Aqu Thomas reviews honesty, which paradoxically is synonymous with virtue and a subset of temperance, right? So those of you who went to Catholic school, hopefully at least you know some of those virtues, right? So fortitude, prudence, justice, temperance, right? So for us, the pertinent passage comes when St. Thomas Aquinas says, the beauty of the body consists in a man having his bodily limbs well-proportioned together with a certain clarity of color. And what he's talking about there is complexion, right? So for you as college students, it's not really something you worry about that much, or if you worry about that much, wait until you hit middle age, right? Your complexion is going to fade. You're going to lose a certain clarity of color, right? Uh, as age hits you, right? And that's part of beauty is that complexion. On like manner, spiritual beauty consists in a man's conduct or actions being well-proportioned in respect to the spiritual clarity of reason. Now, this is what is meant by honesty, which we have stated to be the same as virtue. And it is virtue that moderates according to reason all that is connected with man. Wherefore, honesty is the same as spiritual beauty. Hence, Augustine says, by honesty, I mean intelligible beauty, which we properly designate as spiritual. And I guess, gosh, this is, this is pretty far from what you thought you might have been coming to this talk to hear, right? The, the subject of the talk is beautiful and sublime and art that leads us to God, but I'm gonna start here with you, the human person, right? You and the beauty of you is not to be praised in the same way as the beauty of most things that exist as bodies, right? 
to talk about the beauty of a horse or the beauty of the sky or to talk about the beauty of fish as they, they swim, right, is not the same as you because you possess a beauty which is closer to the true source and font of all beauty, which is God himself. And the closer part of that image is going to be spiritual. And so, for, again, if any of you are feeling on campus, and again, it's, we live in this world of Instagram and everything else, if any of you are feeling in some way that, oh gosh, like I need to possess a beauty which is physical, let me tell you that Aquinas is here to say no, that for the proper human being understand of it, yes, there is a certain proportionality and complexion and everything like that. We can admire that, yes, there is a goodness to the beauty of your body, but the greater beauty inside of you is this spiritual, intellectual beauty, right? And out of that, and the capacity that comes from that, we produce art. Not only like God do we possess spirit, but like God, we can create. Now, unlike God, we don't create out of nothing. It takes a lot of hard work and takes a lot of stuff that he's given us, but we cooperate with him in creating things. But we also have to work with beauty. So here's a fifth way into the talk, and, and, and I've given you space um, to look at this and to think about it a little bit. But when it comes to poetry, literature, and beauty, um, I think things got very, very interesting with what Aquinas is doing. Beauty consists in proportion and clarity, but what does it mean for spiritual non-corporeal substance to have clarity? Is your soul shiny, right? Is there like L'Oreal for the soul, right? No, as Aquinas says right here, reason is the light of the soul. To possess and cultivate reason gives light, gives clarity, gives beauty to the soul. Spiritual beauty consists in a man's conduct or actions being well proportioned in respect to the spiritual clarity of reason. Honesty is beautiful. In fact, honesty is more beautiful than just about any physical object because the source of its beauty is closer to God, the source of all beauty. But in Christianity, and this is where it gets complicated because I'm going to acknowledge it, God became man. Not just that, but the second person in the Trinity, Jesus Christ became man. So now what does that do to beauty in relationship to poetry and art? How can the mind not reel at the idea that the source of all beauty in proportion and reason was the logos, the incarnate word. So the stakes are extraordinarily high then for understanding beauty in our faith. For what other endeavor do we pursue where we try to put measure, proportion, and clarity into our words, right? So if we're imitating the word, where else in words do we look for measure, proportion, clarity, beauty, than in poetry, in literature, and in art. So it's my job to basically wreck, at this point in the lecture, everything that I've just talked about and introduce the sublime. So I'm gonna muddle it up. As we make the distinction between the beautiful and the sublime in art, I think it'll be helpful to bring in some examples. Um, so let me start with an invocation taken from the great poet Dante. It appears right in the beginning of his Paradiso, so it is my assumption that it would seem fitting to discuss the Paradiso when talking about the beautiful and the sublime because the Paradiso as the third part of Dante's Divine Comedy would be all about light and ethereal uh, beatitude that belong in heaven. So here I have two pictures, right? Um, here, Paradiso, here, Inferno, right? So when we think about the beautiful and the sublime, our minds probably think about this picture of, uh, this is the, the, the prints by Gustave Doré of uh, the Divine Comedy. This is a 19th century print. 
Uh, on the left, we have a scene from Canto 28 of the Inferno where Bertrand de Born speaks while holding up his decapitated head among the heaps of corpses dismembered by demons. On the right, we have Canto 31 of the Paradiso as Dante approaches the beatific vision, right? And so we're gonna talk about the sublime, but for a second, let's talk about what's beautiful, right? On the right, uh, there's proportion, there's harmony, right? There's clarity, there's, there's a certain light and radiance. On the left, uh, that is not how the proportion of where a head is supposed to be, right? <laughs> and so it's an artwork, and so this is the thing you have to wrap your mind around, okay? So if you saw someone holding their head in their hand and the head was not attached to the neck, that would not be beautiful, <laughs> okay? But I'm going to make an argument, stick with me, that there can be moments of beauty in describing things that aren't beautiful. So it's my hope that we're going to ponder these questions and we're going to take our assumptions about what's beautiful and what's ugly, what's sublime and lofty and what's low down and crass and just upend them. So here at the beginning of the Paradiso, we find Dante invoking Apollo and saying, Oh, good Apollo, for this last labor, make me a, worthy, a vessel worthy of the gift of your beloved laurel. Up to this point, one peak of Mount Parnassus had, has been enough but now I need them both in order to confront the struggle that awaits. Enter my breast and breathe in me as when you drew out Marcius out from the sheathing of his limbs. So Christ is invoked here under the guise of Apollo, the God of sun, light, reason. That's great. That all checks out. This is beautiful. This is sublime. The peaks of Parnassus, mountains, sublime, right? Beautiful. They're where the muses sing. Beautiful, sublime, they inspire poets, they give us lofty images, both literal and metaphorical. But then we have this odd bit about Marcius, right? Um, there's no, are there any classics majors lurking here who know who he is? No, good, okay, great, I, the glory can all be mine. <laughs> For those unfamiliar with the myth, the, the locus classicus, which is just a pretentious way as classicists have of saying, the place where everyone goes to, it's the equivalent of the Wikipedia entry. The locus classicus at the time of Dante would have been the contest between Apollo and Marcius in book six of Ovid's Metamorphoses. For the crime of having challenged the god Apollo to a singing, not a singing contest, a playing contest, a music contest, Marcius was flayed alive, right? We know what, we know what that is, yes? Okay, that's horrific. You're removing all the skin from the body very strange and violent image to begin your description of paradise, right? It's not like most of us are sitting in the chapel meditating, okay, guardian angel, like help me here. I really want to get to heaven. I really want Jesus to take all the skin off of my body <laughs> and transport. No, that's not what we think, right? This is a really strange, violent image, right? This is not what you ask for, right? It's not beautiful. To remove someone's epidermis will improve neither the proportion of the body and it will not brighten your complexion. Just guaranteed. <laughs> this is not a face mask treatment that you ever want to try. And yet as metaphor for the poet who dares to outdo the word with his words, I will argue that this is a beautiful and sublime turn of phrase. So before we return to how this is sublime, I want to give you guys a sense of a definition of the sublime. I've not sort of laid out the term. Um, the term is a Latinate form of the Greek word tohupsos, um, 
which was the subject of the first century AD treatise ascribed to Longinus, commonly called today On the Sublime, right? So there's literally a book called On the Sublime. You can read it. It's great if you're into that thing. The Greek refers to those qualities which make literature high or lofty. I prefer the Latin because it has the additional image of taking us up and beyond some imaginary barrier that separates the earth and the heavens. Um, in fact, it's, it's what I think of here. Uh, I think, for example, this image from Camille Flammarion, this is of the Greek philosopher Empedocles breaking the crystal barrier that separates earth's atmosphere from the inner heaven. Right? The sublime is a kind of greatness, right? So when we talk about the sublime in art, and if you read more Aquinas, please go to his sections on magnificence, magnanimity, generosity. All of these will help. We don't have time for them today. But let's just say that it is a kind of greatness, right? But the greatness is not about just mere quantity, right? Uh, it's not just a, a stacking up, right? It exceeds boundaries. It transports the viewer out of himself or herself. Some art is so great that it reaches cruising altitude, and some art is sublime, and it reaches terminal velocity, and it rockets you out of planetary orbit, out into the stars and the heavens. And I think that we, we know this thing, right? Most art kind of is like that fix that most you know, commercialized art does, right? Next episode, right? Cliffhanger, right? We just want to give you enough of something good so that you keep coming back and watching our commercials. Sorry, I'm being very cynical here and I apologize. But I mean, come on. <laughs> and on the other hand, there's that art which is selfless, is not utilitarian, right? Some art exists to sell you product. Some art exists in and for itself and is real art. Right? And that art can transport us, right? Um, if we had time for a, a course on poets on poetry, I would argue that Suno Longinus did not come up with this concept on his own. He stands at the end of a long tradition of thought going back to Hellenistic Alexandria. There, the idea in Greek of leptotes or refinement can be found in poets like Callimachus and Theocritus as well as in scholiastic commentaries that developed a sophisticated coded vocabulary to describe their approbation and dissatisfaction with turns of phrases and poets ranging from Homer and Hesiod to Pindar. Yes, you notice that I dropped Pindar there, which is an excuse for more people to read my doctoral work on Pindar. I've, I've just made this utilitarian, I, I, I'm so sorry. And Greek, lit and Greek tragedy. Um, debate continued in commentaries and inside poetry in both Greek and Latin authors. However, Pseudo-Longinus gives our only extant handbook devoted to the topic and the category of the sublime. However, implicitly present in aesthetic debate in late antiquity and the Middle Ages, this idea did not reemerge as a focused subject of philosophical consideration until the republication of Pseudo-Longinus in 1554. Even after this, the idea of the sublime it took another century before the concept came to the forefront of aesthetic. And again, aesthetic is philosophical concepts about the ideas of beauty and art, right? Before it comes to the forefront of philosophical aesthetic ideas during the Baroque with the 1674 translation into French by Bouillot, among the English we find Pseudo-Longinus's presence throughout Edmund Burke's 1757, a, a philosophical inquiry into the origin of ideas of the sublime and the beautiful, and less than a decade later, we see Pseudo-Longinus back on the continent in Immanuel Kant's 
observation on the feeling of the beautiful and the sublime in 1764. I know you're all taking furious notes at this point, but for those who go back and listen to the podcast, you actually want to get into what's going on here. There are other ideas, and I think it's interesting to say which one actually rings true with reality. Does Aquinas and the ancients ring true with reality, or, or do these moderns and contemporaries do? Again, I would argue that there's something really real at stake that's fundamental both to God and human nature to understand here, so I think it's worth looking at. Um, for Pseudo-Longinus, there are five means of achieving the sublime in literature. So is there anyone who, like, is an artist who, like, again, you know, I'm not trying to out you in terms of, like, a slam poetry contest after this lecture, but maybe we can do that. So poetry, drawing, music, is anyone mu you know, somewhat artistically inclined? Okay, a, a few begrudging hands, right? Look, this just goes to show the, the damage that has been done by streaming platforms for music and everything else. Recover your heritage. You are makers of art, made in the image of God who created this world, okay? So go out and make art. Stop listening to like mass manufactured art and thinking that you're, it's so much more enjoyable to sing with friends. Sorry, just had to put a plug in there. <laughs> but if you want to sing with friends and you want to make something new and beautiful, this is how you do it. Longinus tells us, right? There are five things that you have to do, right? Again, for four easy payments of $49.99, you too can make the sublime. <laughs> so the first two arise through the natural genius of the writer, right? So there's some things that you have to, according to Longinus, possess just as a God-given gift, right? Or what we would say the spirit has given you, right? And there are three things that can be cultivated and acquired as a form of art, or what we call, again, the fancy Greek word for art, techne, right? You get the word technology from this. Um, so if you feel like you have the first two, great. That means you're a Homer, you're a Dante, you're a John Milton, you're a Michelangelo, you're a Raphael, fantastic. If you don't have the first two, you can still achieve something great with these arts that you can practice on a human level. So first, there are thoughts of great strength or power, so writing a blog post about your latest uh, favorite, you know, uh, iOS video game is not great thoughts of power and strength. Sorry, I got someone literally walking out on that one. It's an eSports e player. No, is it? Uh, actually, I, I did actually talk about video games once and, and someone did, was actually one of our eSports players and I had to eat my words. Um, second, there's the presence of vehement and enthusiastic passion. Right, so uh, that is, this passion means that you have, um, so the Greek, and again, like, I didn't study Greek for over 20 years to not to just drop it in there. My mom would be proud. Tosphodron kai enthusiastikon pathos. Enthusiastikon, literally having the God inside of you, right? So there's the God inside of you. So you, this, this presence, right? Again, you can't force that right? That has to be something that's given, right? So this is why it's part of the part of what Longinus says is given. But then we come to the three that you can practice. Third, there are lofty figures of thought. Fourth, there are lofty figures of speech, what we might call diction, right? And finally, there is lofty or sublime way of arranging the words. So it's, it would take too long for me to go section by section to illustrate all these, but I want to pause for a moment to consider what Pseudo-Longinus might mean by the artistic means of infusing literature with the sublime. So in Latin poetry, there's something called the golden line. Um, for those who have a little Latin, which is none of you, but some of you might be listening on the podcast, 
Um, you know, as a highly inflected language, Latin has a lot of leeway in deciding where to put words inside a sentence. It's what frustrates early readers of that language. And yet, there are certain ways of ordering a sentence that are loftier. If you ever studied the Roman poet Virgil, you would have seen a few instances of the golden line. So unlike English prose order of subject, verb, object, you know, see, spot, run, right? Uh, it was constructed as you would see on the board. There's an adjective, A, an adjective, B, a verb, a noun, A, noun, B. Um, and so what we have here is this beautiful interweaving of this adjective going with this noun, this adjective going with this noun, and this, this verb is a verb which signifies an interweaving going on. And so the, the actual line of text does what the, it's describing. That's a really hard thing to describe. If you want to talk to me after, I can recite some lines of Homer. I don't want to be too obnoxious. But there's beautiful lines in Homer where like, the actual meter that Homer will use matches the racing of the horses. You can actually hear the horses racing. Right? That's beautiful. It's sublime. Right? But the phenomenon is, is not unknown in English. I want to show you an example that we all know. Um, to be or not to be, that is the question. Now we can switch the order. The question is, to be or not to be? Now let's switch the order in the diction. The question is, is it better to be alive or dead, right? And so we're going back to those principles that Longinus laid out of figures of thought, figures of speech, and arrangement of those. And we're seeing this, you know, how does Shakespeare do it, right? It's not magic, right? There's an art behind this. The sublime, as with any excellence, has uh, two opposing <coughs> has two opposing vices, right? Um, those of you who, who go into Aquinas and, and Aristotle, you're going to see this. The, the one that you get all the time is fortitude, right? Fortitude, all virtues exist as a mean. Fortitude exists between a deficiency of fortitude, which would be cowardice, and an excess of fortitude, which would be foolhardiness, right? Um, I'll give you an example of this. Um, Courage is not just the ability to perform a certain action despite the danger, but also not taking on unnecessary dangers. For example, we would say that a man who uh, rushes in front of High Street here to save a child who's about to be struck by a bus, right? That man was courageous. If that same man were to rush in front of a bus to save a burrito from being flattened, we would call him a fool or an idiot. <laughs> I mean, unless it was like Skyline Chili, right? And that's, no, no, no Skyline Chili fan. I, I thought it was a Cincinnati thing. I was told it was going to work with this audience. I'm sorry. We can. All right, get your act together, OSU. Give me some emblematic food besides Skyline Chili. All right, so anyway, pseudo-anginus does, uh, does give us the two extreme uh, opposed to the sublime. On the one hand, there is um, the puerile. For those who didn't take Latin, puerile comes from the Latin word for puer or a boy. So we might um, call this boyishness or immaturity. As he characterizes it, immaturity comes from hasty or ill-considered ways of constructing the thought. I would say that the no fear Shakespeare version of the question is, is it better to be alive or dead 
is a great example of this deficiency, right? It's what we call puerility, right? Uh, I'm teaching Hamlet right now in a great books class uh, on campus, and this is the question, right? Can you reduce to be or not to be, that is the question, to just, should I kill myself? No, there's so much more contained in that thought and that construction than, than that, right? And so it would be puerile or childish to reduce it to that. On the other hand, the sublime can also be missed by an excess. And this is those who are like, you know, art school wannabes, you got the beret on your head or whatever it is, and just so angsty, right? And you, you take on a certain pomposity and you conflate that with sublimity, right? So uh, Pseudolonginus calls this the tumid or the swollen, right? That is, you might equally imagine myself butchering the sublimity of Shakespeare by saying, Ach, forsooth to be or not to be, hence the query, right? I'm just like literally just getting the thesaurus out and looking for any word that is more syllables than the word I could have used, right? So hopefully this gives you a clear idea of what I mean by the sublime in syntax, right? Greatness doesn't come by just piling things on and greatness certainly can't be achieved by not daring. It's a Goldilocks principle. Now, as you can see in this diagram, it's not exactly clear with the sublime or with any virtue where the exact demarcation is as a general principle. You know, I like to think of it more of as a bell curve that you can say there are certain angles uh, uh, where, you know, you know moments where you've, you've kind of crossed the line, right? And so that, that can be seen better represented as a bell curve, I would say. Um, I want to make sure that we leave time for Q&A. Um, so I'm going to uh, skip a, a section here, so my apologies. Um, I want to pause and, and make a suggestion that what's at stake in understanding the beautiful and the sublime here in art. If Dante were a painter or a sculptor rather than the poet, the images that he presents of Apollo flaying Marcius alive might arguably not, not be sublime, might not be beautiful. Right? Again, it's about knowing your art and what it can achieve. But the effect here is to transport us out of what we know. Sometimes the book is better than the movie because they're two different kinds of media, right? It's a rather odd thing for a metaphor to do, to return to Dante. It's an odd thing for a metaphor to do. Most of us, when you're taught what metaphors do, you're taught that metaphors take something that's unknown and bring in something known in order to explain it. But Dante here is taking you into paradise, into heaven, to see God, something that he and no one else has seen, no mortal man, right? So what he does then is give you this metaphor that is something even more unknown. I would dare say none of us know what it's like to be flayed alive. But we do have skin, we do know pain, and so he gives us this striking metaphor to show you what he's trying to do. He's trying to rouse you out of all sensible knowledge into exploring the spiritual realities of paradise. The point of the metaphor is to inspire, and this is an important idea, wonder. Wonder, which as St. Thomas Aquinas says, is the first step along the pursuit of wisdom. Wonder does not come from something known and commonplace unless perhaps we see that thing that we thought we knew in a new light for the first time and realize that we never really knew it, right? So this principle in art of what the beautiful is trying to do, 
and what the sublime is trying to do when they work in harmony is to waken in you not just desire because remember as we said way back when desire is fixed on the appetites and that's actually relating to the good right and, and this is the confused world that we live in right where we we we, we create objects of beauty and we, we turn them into things that are meant to spur on desire. Think of like movies and television shows and video games and pornography and everything else, right? We've taken something that should be an object for the cognitive faculty, the appreciation of the beautiful, and we've reduced it to something that incites desire, and then we've turned the good, which just be something that we have an appetite for. This food is good. I don't need to worry about whether or not this food is good. My appetites take care of that. There's no cognitive faculty necessary to realize that this food is good. Yes, there can be practical prudence involved in it, and there can be speculative ideas of this, is, this food is good for my health, and practical ideas of it's better for me to eat in this restaurant and not that restaurant. But to sense that the food is good is just an appetitive response. To understand the beautiful requires the faculty of the mind, requires your intelligence, it calls you to something greater. And this path that art has is something that makes it a friend of philosophy. We start with desire, all of us have desire, but most of us live in this confused fallen world where secondary desires, no one is born with a desire for an iPhone, no one's born with watching the, a desire for the next episode on Netflix, Right? So we have to awaken you with sublime, the shocking, into realizing the deeper desires that God has implanted in you from the beginning. Desires of knowledge, desires ultimately that rest in wisdom, right? which is knowledge of God. And so today, I don't have time for it, and we can talk about it in Q&A, what we've done for this in terms of artwork is truly um, just go out and, and be controversial and say is horrendous, right? Um, but before I say goodbye, I want to leave you with one last example of something that is good, that is true, is beautiful, and is sublime. And it's a blending of Chaucer and Dante. In the very last stanza of um, Geoffrey Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida, Chaucer draws on Canto Four of Dante, Dante's Paradiso, and he says, then one and two and three, eternal on live, that reigneth I in three and two and one, uncircumscript and all was circumscribed, us from visible and invisible foon defend, and to thy mercy ever shone. So make us Jesus for thy mercy deign, for love of maid and mutter thine benign. Amen. Now look, just because I have chosen this example from Chaucer, it doesn't mean that there aren't true, good, beautiful things being made today, right? But this is what I know, and so this is what I present to you. Yet I would dare say it's very hard to match these great ones. Ones like Dante, who talk about what motivates the authors and what motivates the world, right? Dante, in the very end of the Paradiso, says, right, the love that moves the sun and all the other stars. So hopefully at this point in the lecture, I've avoided kind of most of my inclinations to boyish scurrility and jokes. Um, but if I fear, I fear if I take any much longer, I'm gonna overshoot the mark. And instead of inspiring you, 
I'm going to give you not the sublime sense of wonder, but the tumid sense of the need to sleep. So it's, hope, it's my hope that like Chaucer and Dante, while I may discuss the, the crass and the not beautiful with you, I may have pointed you just to a few ways that you can look for the beautiful and the sublime in life and in art. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.